You're listening to Always Player One, a solo board gaming podcast. Hello and welcome to Always Player One. I'm Scruffy. And I'm Norm. And today we're going to be talking about Robinson Crusoe and thematic tie-ins in games. Subject we've spoken about before, but I think we have a pretty fresh perspective and a new context with this interesting little uh, survival game. Yeah, we'll also be covering the focus of the game and touching on immersion as well. Yeah, I think the two pretty much go hand in hand. But before we dive in, next week we have a really special episode. If you're eagle-eyed, you'll notice that next week is Christmas Day. The day of release of our next planning phase episode will be Christmas Day. So we have a very special episode. It's going to be a head-to-head quiz. Scruffy versus Norm with Kendall. McKenzie, the designer of Railway Station. They've been on our podcast before on episode five. They're going to be hosting. We've actually already recorded that episode and it was just incredibly fun, wasn't it? Yes, it was a really, really amazing show. We both went away from it just buzzing, didn't we? And it was a real, real fun experience. Uh, Kendall outdid themselves. They put forward an amazing, well-structured and interesting quiz and there were some real dramatic moments in it. Yeah. So it, it, keep an eye out for that. It will come out in all the normal places. You find our podcast. It's free to everyone. And uh, it was a really, really fun show. It's basically like a game show. We did it like a game show. Hmm. And yeah, you're right. Kendall knocked it out of the park. I really enjoyed playing. And I hope that you all enjoy listening as well. Yes. Anything else we want to mention before we dive into the game? No, let's get started. Go ahead. Okay, so I'm going to give you guys an overview of Robinson Crusoe now for anyone who hasn't played before. So Robinson Crusoe is a one to four player cooperative game where you take on the role of survivors on an island trying to overcome the demands of a specific scenario. At the start of the game, you choose a scenario which has its own special rules, setup changes and ultimate goal for how to win. There are always more ways to lose than to win, however, as you will lose the game if your character dies or if you run out of turns. The number of turns varies depending on the scenario, and each turn is split into six phases. The event phase, morale phase, production, actions, weather, and finally, night. I won't dive into details for every phase, but each of them resolves fairly quickly, triggering events to challenge and directly threaten your chances for success. The exception to this is the action phase. This is the main space for player decision in the game, and it is where players get the chance to make moves to explore, build, gather, and in various other ways react to what is happening around them and make progress towards their victory conditions. Actions are taken by sending one or two of your available pawns to a space. Once all pawns are sent, the actions resolve in a set order. Some effects might mean places take more pawns to be used than usual, but usually the choice here is to send two pawns and have the action resolved with certainty and with no additional effects, or send one pawn and then roll three dice related to the action when it's triggered. One dice decides whether you succeed at the action, with a V meaning success, and 
not rolling a V, meaning that you fail. If you fail, that character gains two determination, but does not succeed. This determination is used to power their special abilities. The next dice determines if your character takes a wound or not during the action. And finally, the last dice determines whether you encounter an adventure card. These cards often have immediate effects and are then usually added to the event deck to be encountered again later. The three dice are not evenly weighted for each event, with each event having its own set of three dice. So the likelihood for each is different. For example, exploring is very likely to succeed, but also very likely to add adventure cards to the event deck. I'll also quickly mention the event deck here since it's come up. At the start of every round, an event card is drawn from the deck and its effects are resolved. These cards always have an immediate effect and are then added to the threat space. These cards have another effect which will trigger at a later time if you do not invest pawns during the action phase to resolve the problem. They also usually offer benefits if you do decide to tackle the threats. I think that is Robinson Crusoe in a nutshell. There's a lot more to touch on and we will talk about probably all the other phases as we go into the game and how the weather works and everything like that but I didn't want to overload you right here with a big rules explanation. Yeah I think that was absolutely perfect. I think the only thing I would add before we start is I haven't managed to get as many games in as I would like of Robinson Crusoe before recording the show. Normally I aim for a decent amount, at least until I feel like I have a really firm grasp of how it's going to hold up after quite a few plays. With this one, these last two weeks have been so busy in my personal life, I will not bore you listeners with the details, but just now I've been extremely busy and I have gotten as many games as I can, but it's not as much as I normally would. Scruffy, however, has played it plenty. Yeah, I have been playing it non-stop and I feel I've played all the scenarios now. Uh, I've played solo, multi-handed with two characters, multi-handed with four characters. I've made that island my new home. It's been really fun. Brilliant. So um, hopefully you've played it enough for both of us. And um, (laughs) yeah, I'll I'll just know that listeners, when when I'm speaking of my opinions of the game, it is me sharing my first impressions and uh, initial thoughts. And they may change as a as I play it more often. And if you're in the Discord, you'll probably see me express those as we chat day to day. But uh, yeah, for now, this is my initial impressions. Yes. And everything I say is 100% correct. As, and as always, right? Indisputable. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's how it always is, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't need to be said, but for new listeners, everything I say, indisputable. Okay, brilliant. Well, you've been playing it a bunch, Scruffy, so why don't you kick us off? What's the first thing you want to unpack with Robinson Crusoe? Okay, I'm going to just say right out of the gate, I like Robinson Crusoe a lot. It was really nice for me and really refreshing to play with something, you know, in the physical world rather than on tabletop simulator. And that was really lovely. Setting it up was really fun. But there are a few things that I have a problem with with the game so there's a couple of little bugbears one i'm just going to throw out right now and get it out of the way and that is the minutiae of the rules just i don't know if it was a problem with me and the rule book or just that the symbols are sometimes a bit not clear but oh my god it i spent 
most of the first games I played, it was like a nostalgia trick from when I first picked up the game. Like even having got used to the game before and then not playing it, picking it back up again, I was just lost. I had to just play with the rule book on my lap and keep checking, referencing and never being able to find what I wanted. But once I got past that, that was not so much a problem anymore. It's just the the kind of unexpected and unexplained interactions you know you have to have an faq up for some things because they're just not in the rule book it's it's funny actually because it's a re- it's it's a pretty simple game you know the the flow of the gameplay yeah. is actually really really simple it's just occasionally and i i experienced this as well so i'm glad you brought it up occasionally you'll go oh yeah um so i just need to get one or get rid of one of those things what's one of those things what's this again okay i need the rule book <laughs> yeah and, then, and that the worst thing is that there isn't a clear a, a, appendix. Everything is a real just pain in the rule book to look up. You know, like I, 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 <laughs> I'll, give you, I'll give you a great example: is that there are multiple symbols for for, for the same resource. Y- yeah. So it's just wasted time. Once you get used to it, like you said, it's not a problem anymore. But it's just wasted time. There's like when you uncover a parrot, you're like, okay, that's that's food, but fish is also food yeah so it's just knowing that when you uncover it it's an animal it's food but also there's a beef deck so why would they choose to use any animal as it's just confusing (laughs) well i think the reason for doing that was that there are some event cards which will interact with specific symbols so they will only interact with food if it's a parrot or if it's a fish and that makes sense. And you go, oh, when you draw it, you go, oh, I get it now. Like there's an item, I think, called Coral, which will only target a parrot, right? Uh, so you need that specific land tile next to you. But when you're first picking up the game or when you're kind of re-picking up the game, you you scratch your head and you go, why did they do this? Yeah. And I feel like there's they could have made it a bit clearer, really simply, like, you know, why not just have a generic symbol for food and then a picture of a parrot next to it? Yeah, yeah. Problem solved then, right? And you you look at the parrot and go, why is that a parrot? And you you don't need to worry about it because you can see that it's only a minor symbol. It's a sub symbol, mm-hmm. right? But just knowing, for example, that tiles, the exploration tiles can only ever contain food and wood as the kind of income. Food and wood are the only two incomes, right? I mean, that's a really it's it's so simple, <laughs> but you don't know it until you know it, and. Yeah, the rule, the, the the iconography doesn't help. It's not a massive issue, like you said. It's not so. I don't no, think and, and that's just one example, but it does happen a lot. Like I had problems with knowing when certain things stay and when things don't. The shortcut, uh, for example, lets you put a little token next to your camp, and then when you move camp, do you move that or not? And I had to work out that no, you don't. That that took a lot of figuring out. But the snare, which is another item you get, that will move with your camp or something. It's okay <laughs> why yeah. um i get it thematically but in terms of mechanically there's nothing to say that those tokens move differently you know you just have to learn every rule for every interaction i don't know yeah we don't have to hold it against robinson crusoe though our favorite solo game of all time is difficult to learn yeah, uh, yeah. has minutiae has things you need to look up in the rule book as well it's not uh, necessarily a bad thing but certainly noteworthy and 
yeah, I experienced it. And I'm still in that stage where if I was to get it out now, I would still probably need the rule book in front of me just to check those things. Yeah. But yeah, I'm sure, like you said, once you played it a few times, um, that those problems seem to fade into the background. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got to a point now where I'm not diving into the rule book, which is great. It's just deceptively simple and heavy. Yeah. It's a really weird thing. And it's interesting, this kind of duality, that it goes to another step as well with the game, that it has this kind of strange sort of it's it has it almost has two faces like this is a really simple game but ha 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 you don't know how to move all the tokens so it's not uh, and then it has this thing with with the way it focuses as well so it it, it is at once trying to be it's clearly trying to be an immersive storytelling game of exploration right and also a clever strategy game with interesting choices Great. And so it tries to wear those two masks. And obviously, that's ideal, right? I mean, we've played lots of games that really do that really well. But I think Robinson Crusoe, in some ways, often feels a bit at odds with itself. Now, I, I'm, I'm, I want to say, again, I really enjoy playing the game, and I have a really fun time with it. But I always go away thinking, oh, yeah, that was, yeah, was kind of good. That was kind of great. But it, it never takes that extra step into a, being a masterpiece, you know, being whoa <laughs> because the two mechanics pull against each other i think in a way that inhibits it from ever breaking that ceiling you know they kind of they rein each other in it's like two dogs pulling themselves in in, in different directions okay the bow. can you can you elaborate on that a little bit scruffy what would you yeah, mean absolutely okay so i'll, I'll give uh, i'll give one example so for example the scenarios they they feel like a little bit of a wasted opportunity in that they're structured in very similar ways. Now, they play with the mechanics of the game really interestingly really well, but they always have a set number of turns that doesn't really deviate too much. There are some that are slightly shorter and slightly longer. But I want to know why there isn't a scenario, for example, that isn't 20 turns long instead of the usual 8 to 12. Why isn't there one that lets you just get completely wrapped up in the world and the story and have a massive deck with loads of things happening? And then you could, I, I, I know the reason why, I think. The reason is probably to try and make sure the game doesn't outstay its welcome and keep it neat, keep it tidy, keep it within a time frame. But especially for solo play, and I know it's not a solo only game, but for solo play, you don't need to worry so much about that. And I think it would be, for me especially, really lovely to be able to luxuriate a bit. Mm, yeah, and especially because it's a scenario game. If if the game was inherently short or inherently long, then Ivor could put, put off certain gamers. Mm. But because it's scenario-based, you can choose. I mean, I remember when I first got into solo gaming, I played Mountains of Madness. When you go on the app, it tells you roughly how long each scenario is going to be, and they vary. They really vary. Like the intro yeah. scenario is an hour, whereas some of them are like, this one will take you 300 minutes. And you're like, wow, okay, that's a lot. That's a lot of minutes. <laughs> you know? yeah. But it doesn't matter because if you don't want to sit down and play it for that long, you just don't play that scenario. Exactly. I love the scenarios. Like there are a few that I don't love, but there are some, especially, for example, uh, Robinson, uh, Family Robinson. That one is my favorite scenario. And it starts to hint at this. It's a quite a long one. I think it's 12 turns. And it lets you kind of, it throws all of the items into the market, like a whole extra nine instead of five items for you to potentially build. And that choice is really exciting. And that, that is the goal. You have to try and build all of these items. 
which is to me the most fun part of the game. So I love a scenario that is rewarding that rather than just giving you an additional sort of task to do, which doesn't hit my dopamine receptors in the same way. So yeah, that, that one is great. I just think, why doesn't it do more? You know, why, why, why have they, why have they not added another five or six scenarios, which change the game fundamentally one which is only a four turn scenario we just have to quickly rush go quick done in 30 minutes mm. and one which is a 20 why why don't they really enjoy giving giving rain to one of those dogs as i called it first of the two dogs of strategy versus uh immersion because they do feel at odds with each other in this game and and, and really allow them to to to, to go free i haven't really I, I guess i haven't really explained where i where i see it so much in the game i'll try and do that now sure so going back to the items for example in the game there are uh, nine nine starter items which are always available to build and then you draw five more up randomly there is one character called the carpenter who has the ability to add more items to the table right and I think that that's a real shame that they limited that to one character, one specific character. And I really, I, I understand that the reason is to encourage, I guess, diverse strategies for the different characters. That that one wants to do, you know, more sort of research and development, and add more options to the table with their determination tokens, and the other characters don't have that ability. But that strategic choice there, that that thing that limits your strategic options, also limits your narrative immersion in some ways and, and it limits your options for diversifying your own story if that makes sense that makes perfect sense there's like a there's a thematic reason for why the carpenter would be able to do this action and other people wouldn't mm. but it in having that nice thematic tying with the carpenter you're kind of not allowing as many options for other people i suppose and also the carpenter's not going to be in every game. So you know any game without them, once you've seen the five random items, you know that this is it. This is These are the tools I have to tell my story and it's not going to expand upon this at all. I, I think it kind of gets away with it because you, you never know what those five items are going to be until you start the game. But yeah. I do understand what you're saying. It's a really good example. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an example. I think there are others as well, like... Um... Just in in the in the general kind of macro of the game that you are working towards a scenario goal, but there's also really interesting stories coming at you from the game. So it's got these discovery cards, uh, these event cards, sorry, and then uh, other cards, adventure cards, which present you with interesting narrative beats that you can play off or ignore and have consequences from. But then you're always being pulled back to this. I often find that the scenario is is it feels a bit disconnected because it's just a mechanical demand, right? I'll give a great example: is the cursed island, I think it's called, is one where you have to move around the board and build crosses in different places, which is just an investment of wood and a person to do something, right? And it's just kind of a, a task; it's a, a, a generic, simple task that you have to do. Okay. That feels like it gets in the way of being able to focus your attention on other parts of the game. So when you draw an interesting event card that becomes a threat and you want to go over there and deal with that because it's interesting and fun, the game says, no, 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 no. Remember the strategy. You need to focus on the main objective. And you go, okay, I guess I'll explore and move. That's a bit boring, but I have to do it for 
obligations, you know? <laughs> I understand exactly what you're saying. In fact, actually, I I find Iron Swan has this kind of same problem in a weird way. Mm. In that when you start your you, when you start a game of Robinson Crusoe, you read the scenario and you think this is going to be the most interesting thing that happens. But then you get all this emergent narrative that comes out of the game. And that's actually much more interesting. Exactly the same thing happens in Iron Swan, where you build your character and you give them a background vow and you think this is going to be really important to them as a person. Mm-hmm. And then after about an hour of gameplay, all these other things have happened and you've completely forgotten about your background vow. <laughs> but yeah. at least that's how I feel a lot of the times. So I think, oh, actually, as I'm discovering my character and playing my character, that's not as important as I thought it was going to be. And it's absolutely the same thing in Robinson Crusoe. You're like, okay, well, actually, I'm having much more fun battling the beasts and uh, I've become a hunter of the forest, but mm. I have to gather two woods because I've only got three turns left and otherwise I'm going to lose. And that's just, yeah. yeah, it's not, it's kind of pulling you back to this. You're playing a, you're playing a puzzle game and you need to do the puzzle. Uh, actually, yeah. I'd rather get engrossed in the story that I'm telling. It feels like, it's a great sort of storytelling machine, but it clips its own wings in that sense. Exactly. It's really hard to explain it satisfactorily. It's, it's something that runs throughout the game, like constantly in every mechanical interaction in some way. And to some extent, I think some people, it would be a real selling point strength for the game. I think some people would love to have that anchor to cling on to of mechanical intrigue i guess you'd say strategy is what i've been saying but i guess it's more uh, mechanical demands right like you need to get those that wood on the pile you need to build those crosses right Mm. whatever it is in the first scenario you have to build a big pile of wood and, and set a fire it's a demand but i personally think it got in the way of me being able to take any sort of agency of my own story for my characters yeah they felt like loose lilies being buffeted about by the situation. And that's fine because that's, you know, thematically connected. And I'm not saying it's a massive criticism of the game. It's just something that inhibited my enjoyment of playing the game. It prevented it from getting to that next level of top, top tier solo games for you. It stopped it from being my story. It made it a story, not my story. I think that's the best you can say it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I'll um, I'll throw this out in another way because I, I think this is, a, again, it's a perfect example of it. But just looking at a, a, a mechanic at random, I've sprung into my head, the weather dice. They're another example of this. So the way the weather dice work in the game is during the weather phase, based on what the scenario says and any ill effects from any event cards or whatever's happened to you during the game, you will have to roll a certain number of weather dice. Now, there are three of them. One is nasty beasties that are trying to attack you and wreck your palisades. One is rain. It's always just rain. And one is either rain or snow. It's the worst dice, the white dice. I hate that dice. (laughs) And I love the way this works mechanically because what happens is you roll the dice, you add up all the snow clouds that have appeared on the dice. It's either going to be one or two on the white dice if you've rolled the white dice and any other nasty effects. And then you immediately remove that many wood from your supply. And the game has a really horrible thing where if you can't do something, all your characters take a wound. So if you don't have that wood, you're you're just getting hurt, right? 
After that, you add up all the snow clouds and rain clouds combined and compare it to how much roof you've built, which is uh, an option you can do during the game. You can build up your, your shelter, make it have a nice big roof. Then you lose food and wood equal to the difference. Okay, So if you have a, a level three roof and you've rolled four clouds, you've got two, two on both dice, then you're, uh, then you're losing one wood and one food, right? Yep. And finally, the beast dice, like I say, it just it will, uh, it will mess up your other shelter defenses and, and can attack you, which you need to have weaponry for. So all of this boils down to another mechanical demand, another resource investment and action investment in the game that you need to account for. And it's fun in that it's fun to try and prepare, but it's also not fun because there's other stuff you want to do. And if that's the bit you want to focus on and you want to make your shelter really brilliant and prepared, brilliant, but you also then get pulled back and have to do other stuff. Mm. And the stories that come out of that are okay, but they also feel like they're not something I have full control over. I only get a little say in what I can do for them, which, you know, I'm talking about it more now, and I'm actually kind of talking myself around to thinking is a perfect thematic time. It's for a being... really good thematic time. <laughs> I think the guys are great. I was like, I was yeah. waiting for you to finish to go, what you talking about, Scruffy? Yeah, and, I, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm st- you know, I'm, I'm probably just trying to justify my own sort of reaction of feeling like it's a a, a a pull against my immersion but in that way it works really well mm. whoever dies no i think whoever dies are great and i think we're so used to the bad weather because we're from the uk but um <laughs> uh, but no honestly um i think the weather dice are, are really lovely so the game has yeah. really nice thematic tie-ins and i think yeah obviously what you're trying to say scruffy from my understanding is that the game is nearly great you know, it is nearly great. Uh, it has really nice thematic tie-ins. It does feel thematic, and that's why it has lots of immersive storytelling. But you just wish you could lean into that story storytelling as much as you wanted to, rather than be pulled back to this kind of mundane task which determines victory. Like yeah. stuff you do during the game that aren't related directly to your victory sometimes feel much more exciting than the really mundane tasks that determine whether you win or lose whether you live or die and i get that i think that's a really valid criticism i think there are some lovely thematic tie-ins throughout the game though i think the weather dice are one of the the better ones i also think the adventure cards are Mm. really nice i love how and this is a really nice piece of decision making that you have to make through the game as well on every action whether you choose to spend one worker and be risky or two workers and be guaranteed, uh, you know, certain outcome. Sometimes I know that it's it's better for me to send two workers, but I kind of enjoy interacting with the mechanics where you choose to be risky so much that sometimes I don't play optimally because I like rolling the dice and drawing the card, yeah. which is mad, isn't it? It's mad, but I think it's so lovely. Do you want to explain a little bit about how the adventure cards work and how they're added to your... To the event deck later on and just how that comes back to bite you because i think it's really interesting yeah i mean i mentioned it quickly in the intro and i want to say i'm exactly the same i think maybe when i say that it is pulling away from something is maybe it's not pulling away from immersion maybe it's pulling away from 
an enjoyable, pleasurable game with its mechanics. Like it's fighting you to, you're wanting to have fun. You're wanting to send one guy over, just like you said. But it's kind of saying, no, 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 make sure you send two because otherwise we're going to mess you up, son. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And these cards do mess you up, son. So what happens is if you roll a question mark on the adventure card dice, you add, uh, you draw an adventure card. And so this, this is regardless of whether you succeed or fail at the task, you will get an adventure card. And they're very swingy. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're terrible. And sometimes they're a fun choice. So uh, those are my favorite, actually. So I, ha- I, I, I'm, I used to hate randomness in games. And it's actually the thing that stopped me playing this when I, when I was way back two years ago playing for the first time because I didn't like the randomness that the cards brought in. But now I'm a lot more okay with that randomness and I just allow myself to treat it as one of those things of fate and it engages me in a sort of narrative sense. But those decision cards are the best because they'll often say, okay, you decide to take a rest from building, for example. So you may either just discard this card and actually decide not to take that rest, nothing happens, or you can heal up to health, but then you have to shuffle this card into the event deck. And what that means is at the start of the turn, when you draw the event card, if it's drawn, or if any of the adventure cards are drawn, they have a horrible effect on the bottom. Who knows what it might be? Lose some health, everyone loses determination, whatever. And then they say, draw another card. So you get this horrible chaining spike of nastiness uh, and that that spike is absolutely lovely in terms of pacing for the game it's what it what it does i think is it compounds with this emphasis on the game where you spend the first sort of half of the game preparing having fun figuring things out exploring the island making moves and thinking this is going to be easy i've already made loads of progress and then the second half of the game is survival because suddenly you get horrible weather dice introduced as all the scenarios weather dice seem to get worse as the game goes on and these cards that you've so blazingly and and foolishly put into the deck just come one one after another at you during this part of the game where you're just trying to live and <laughs> it hurts yeah, it hurts. And what's really nice about it as well is that it's also, they also make really good thematic sense. I'd give you an example of, of a card. It might be uh, Vipers and you, you might get through it and do the action that you wanted to do, but you've collected this poison token. Okay, fine, whatever. It doesn't give you a problem now, but you're going to shuffle it into the event deck and later on that poison's going to become a problem. If you haven't treated yourself or built like a a cure which is an item you can build before that comes back that's going to hurt you and you don't know when it's going to come back and that's just Mm. it's really it's a really nice thematic tie-in it tells a lovely story and it's fun it's really really fun and i yeah i i much prefer the actions where you send one worker instead of two even though it's riskier, it's more pleasurable, it's more interesting. Unfortunately, if you do that all the time, you will just lose the game because they are punishing. And I think that speaks to the heart of what your point was earlier, Scruffy. Two more points on that. Firstly, there's a really fun thing with the event cards as well, where sometimes they will put a question mark on on one of the relevant 
deck. So when you next take that action, you will have to put those event cards in the deck, no matter whether you send two people or not, which I love because it forces people to engage with this fun mechanic, even if they don't want to. And it also tempts you to then go, well, I might as well just send one person if I'm already putting a question mark in. Uh-huh. Oh, what a lovely little thing that it does for you there. And secondly, if ever you come to the start of a turn and you move to the start of an action phase and you see, because they're all different colored backs, each of the decks has a different color back and you see one of those cards on top of the deck. I used to think that was a design oversight, and I thought it was weak because you had an idea of what's coming. I now realize that's a fun decision that the game is giving you because it's saying to you, oh, there's a green card on top of the deck, so one of the exploration cards you drew earlier is probably going to come back and get you. Oh, so maybe I want to shuffle that deck if I can so I don't have to deal with it next turn and delay it own it for the or maybe i do want to resolve it now wait what was that card again oh my god so hang on there were two weren't there one was vipers and we haven't got the cure so i need more time and what was the other one i've forgotten and so you see there the sort of lovely little decision making that that puts in your brain when you when you get a few plays under your belt and you start noticing these things occurring and you go oh so what how do i how do i try and combat this and i love that i just in some ways I, i wish there was more of that sort of thinking. There was more agency there. It would be it would be cool if uh, a lot more of the winning conditions were based around those kind of like emergent things that we were talking about. Mm. Then that would be that would be a little bit more interesting. But uh, the game is good, you know. I really enjoyed playing it, and I'm yeah. going to keep playing it because I liked it a lot. You know, mm. I really really enjoyed it. I think. We've already alluded to two of my favorite elements, which is the weather dice and the fact that you can always choose to send one worker or two. Some of the other mechanics that I find really pleasurable are some of the restrictiveness of the bonuses that you can collect. So you can collect these extra workers as you as you get through. You like meet people on the island, I suppose, thematically. I don't know if that's the thematic time. No, no. So this is really fun. Uh, the way you get the extra pawns, usually they're not people. They're usually things like a map. Ah, I see. And that's why they can only be used uh, to support your characters. They can't go out on their own. That is so clever. It's even better than you thought, Norm. I actually found this out when I um, when I looked it up. This is another one of those minutia things. I couldn't I couldn't work out whether neutral pawns. They're, they're called neutral pawns. So they're additional pawns that you can get that have specific roles that they can be assigned to, and they can never go on their own they have to only go supporting one of your main pawns and these are really powerful but I I couldn't work out whether they were one use and so I had to I had to kind of end up looking at an FAQ I I was probably just being thick it's probably in the rule book really clearly but I it it turns out it it depends on where you got them from and again this is a problem with iconography that there isn't a symbol for this is a temporary neutral pawn and this is a permanent one just a border even you know a black border on one and a dotted line border on another would have told me it without me having to look at a rule book anyway sorry norm you you were saying yeah but i like the restrictiveness i like that they can only be used on certain actions if you pick up a brown pawn it can only be used to do brown actions pick up a green pawn it can only be used for green actions yeah and there's only one brown and one green action isn't there so you know you say brown actions and green actions it's build is the brown action green is the 
explore action. Like they they will only have one sort of use. Yes, and it means that there's a little thin extra layer of planning, which is just really nice. But what's even nicer is that sometimes you won't want to do those actions. Mm. So you'll be they'll be wasted. You'll be like, okay, I I have this extra pawn. I should probably do that, but I need to do this. Mm. And I'd like that sometimes you finish your your planning and your all your actions and you've got a bunch of extra pawns left over and you're like, ah, oh, this is so suboptimal. And it really triggers me as a as a as a as an ex Euro gamer and someone who's still I, I don't really identify as one thing or the other. I suppose the the term is omni gamer as much as that term makes me a bit sick in my mouth. <laughs> but yeah, the Eurogamer in me goes, this is dreadful. I love it. <laughs> yeah, no, I I get that completely. Like, because those those tokens, extra workers in games, we all know as Euro gamers that they are the most important, valuable resource, right? But in this game, all they are is a safety net. All they mean is you don't have to roll the dice, and you don't have to send one of your big workers to ensure that that happens. That you will succeed for certainty, right? And so they 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 do feel precious, but they're also not they they aren't an extra action if that makes sense or aren't always yeah they're not as useful as you think they are as a coming into it as someone who's like I know how worker placement works I know how this kind of game works they're not as you know the first thing I need to do is get as many of these guys as I can and then I'll win <laughs> no, not not really not at all yeah. sometimes even mm. it's it's very it's very clever it's wonderfully restrictive and it's beautifully thematic in that way and yeah oh yeah just loved that really enjoyed it yeah that ties in quite nicely to how very hard the game is Mm, yeah when i first played i didn't realize quite how hard it was i think i had a few of the rules wrong i was playing on accidentally easy mode but the last three or four games i've played i've lost I've had the most fun with those games because I've got the rules dead right, but I've lost every single one <laughs> for different reasons as well. Uh, what, and uh, I do want to just throw this out here as well. If, you, if you're playing solo, in the solo mode, you play with one character with uh, an additional extra pawn called Friday who acts like a player in some ways but has a lot of immunities. He's kind of... He can do a lot of stuff that a player would do, but he's, he's he's a bit better, but he's also got a few less health hit points and stuff. He's an interesting character. And then the dog, he's a little scruffy. And uh, he he's just a green or a red neutral pawn, so he can be used to hunt or explore. And that, the, to compensate for you having a bit less, what it does is it gives you an extra motivation every turn sorry this game is there's so much interconnectivity here I, i've kind of lost sight of what i was saying at first it's hard yes it's hard because so in solo mode you lose out on a few extra action pawns but it gives you morale and morale is a phase during the start of the turn so after the event phase you do the morale check where you gain determination tokens no problem if you're playing solo you automatically gain one extra morale because you're just Happy you're still alive, which I love. Says that in the rule book. And so morale's never really an issue. If you play like I did, and you play with two characters instead, or more, you suddenly lose that plus one morale every turn. You get a few extra tokens, so you could take the action that gives you more morale. 
but that always feels like a waste. But morale is very, very, very important. And some of the games I've lost are due to having not enough morale. And then when you come to the morale phase and you lose morale and you don't have determination, you take wounds. And so my characters ended up killing themselves. Wow. Wow, wow, Which was wow. pretty pretty damn dark it is pretty dark it is pretty dark indeed i quite like the way the solo bow works i haven't tried it multi-handed you know i like friday and i like the dog i think the frida the dog <laughs> i like that it only has two actions that it can do instead of all yeah. three it's that restrictiveness i was talking about how did you find playing what was your favorite like did you enjoy it pure you know the solo mode did you enjoy multi-handing with two or four what 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 kind of mad concoction did you do that you found worked best two was my favorite really four was really exciting i was a bit burnt out when i started it so maybe it was just that but it, it was a, especially towards the second half of the game when things started to get a bit more hectic i just i started losing track and it was too many spinning plates two was my absolute favorite in two you still have friday the extra sort of uh go you don't have you don't have the dog Taffy anymore, but you do have Friday, which is fun. I like Friday. And it's it's really fun because playing with two characters, morale is now an interesting decision. And it's like with, with all games, like with Marvel, we were saying last time, you get an interesting interplay in terms of emergent narrative. If you have any sort of investment in the characters and kind of just come up with a backstory for why they're there. I played with the Explorer and the Carpenter. And we were playing Family Robinson. And I decided they were the family. They were the parents. And it made for this story where we ended up exploring for the first half of the game. And then we got stuck on an island, on, on a tile, which we decided was going to be basically our home. And we were going to just build up the base there. And, and that's it. We did have ambitions to explore a little bit more in the future. But that never happened because of events. Kids were born. Stuff happened. Stuff came up. And in the end, the Explorer character just died of lack of motivation because they weren't doing what they loved, it felt like, you know? <laughs> and just that little emergent story that came about because of ha having the two characters, which couldn't have come about from the pure solo, or maybe not as easily for me, was really fun. But also, in terms of mechanics and strategy, the choices are more interesting. Like I say, when you play so pure solo, you remove the morale as a factor in the game, almost entirely. And that's a bit sad because it's a really fun mechanic to interact with. So why why strip that away for yourself for something which is it felt just as easy playing with two characters as with, with one. Yeah, that I think that's pretty that's pretty spot on because in my plays I only played solo and I never worried about morale. Like not yeah. once. It was always the top or it wasn't a couple of the plays um i found nice discovery tokens which could increase your morale and i was just like this is useless to me yes <laughs> this is yeah, a waste part of the game. those those increases and decreases in morale in every other game i've played except solo are interesting and fun and exciting and tense and the there's a space on the board one of the action spaces is called a range camp where you can go to increase your morale and I did when I was playing multiplayer, because after the first turn, uh, when I was playing multi-characters, after the first turn, I, 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 I finished and I sat there and went, oh, but we're on the morale phase and it's still at zero. What? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and yeah, and losing, because determination is kind of pretty tricky to come by unless you're unlucky and you fail tasks, which you really don't want to be doing. 
So if you're losing determination, because in the morale phase, it's essentially just a, spl- a slider where you, where you lose determination or gain determination. That's it in a nutshell, as I mentioned previously. But so if, you're, if you haven't got the determination in your character, that horrible rule kicks in where if you can't pay something, you take wounds. And it's, it's killer. Like it literally made me lose games multiple times. Wow. Okay, well, I think my next play, I'm going to try multi-handed now. I didn't even consider it. I thought the solo mode was really well done. I liked that there's consideration for it. I like that you get Teddy, the dog, but I think that sounds more interesting. I wonder what other people's opinions on this are, because Robinson Crusoe is a really popular game. It was like number 11 on the People's Choice top solo games this year, and it's been in the top 10 for the two years prior to that so i wonder what the general listenership think but uh yeah that definitely sounds more interesting from the way you just described it for sure yeah yeah i mean it's a shame to lose meeple the dog but i put i put him as the round tracker and pretended we had a dog around with us just not doing anything that that, that solved it for me <laughs> that's nice that's nice that's a good compromise <laughs> Because he's great. I, I do like that in the rules when you're playing solo, it says the dog cannot die. Fantastic. Yeah, good. <laughs> Otherwise, That's good game design. <laughs> oh, that is good game design. That prevents it from being thrown out the window. <laughs> I've got to say, you know, the more I've talked about this in this episode, I've, I've come to realise that, you know, a lot of what I love about the game is the kind of conflict that runs through it. And whilst I wish it could have a few more scenarios that allow you to luxuriate a bit more. I think that would be a solution. I, I think that, you know, it's it would be a shame to fundamentally rework everything about the game to make it have a specific focus. I think it's nice that it has this kind of two faces to itself in a weird sort of way. So hold on. So we're doing a 360 here. Yeah, yeah I'm, turning, I'm turning around. 180, 180. 180, wait, yeah, yeah. Oh, wait, that's how, that's how maths works. <laughs> So so you're saying now that you like the fact that it has two faces rather than yeah. I changed my mind. Change. I just wish it had more scenarios. I think the real the real <laughs> downfall <laughs> Okay, okay, cool. Awesome. I think that's I think that's really fun. I think that's really fun. Changing your mind. That's I, like, yeah. No, I think it's that... great. I think it's really fun that you came in with one idea and we've talked about it and just through the process of saying it all out loud, you're like, actually, this game's really clever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, you know, it's it's important to talk stuff out to work out where you stand, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's I think it's awesome. I think it's really cool that you've done that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. But like um, yeah, like I said, I think uh, I think it would be nice. I think that, that that sort of could be accommodated by having, like I say, a, a massive sprawling scenario. I'm almost tempted to say maybe it could have a campaign thing where you have sort of generations where you have a scenario, move from scenario to scenario, and what you did in the last one determines what happens to the future ones. If, you, if your character's died, maybe you have to pivot or maybe something weird happens. I don't know. That would be really fun and cool to see. And it feels like everything's kind of there. The game is there, but the scenarios almost feel a bit token. And, and like I say, the the real kind of mechanical pull away from the fun, the sort of thing that goes, oh, make sure you send the wood to the wood pile. And you go, but I want to hunt, you know, it's is the scenarios and it is the way they're set up. And 
they're, they're clever and they're good. And I love the way the weather dice are designed for some of them. For some of them, I hate them because they don't have any weather dice and I don't understand why they made that choice. But for others, yeah, I, I, I love the, the layout of them for their specific scenario. But there should be more and they should be more interesting and break the game in more interesting ways. Well, this is where some of the expansions might become interesting because I'm just looking at the moment on the geek and there's quite a lot of expansions with a number of other scenarios. So maybe this is something we need to revisit. Maybe. I can't imagine because, right, here's the thing. The, ex the scenarios smell like developed and carefully curtailed scenarios. They don't... This is this is something with the whole game. There's there's no rough edges in the it's it, it's all cleverly designed, but I miss those rough edges. I wish there were one or two scenarios that had those rough edges kept in, and and had the room to grow into something weird and unusual and a fun experience to recapture some of the mystery that the game could have. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said it because I certainly feel after a few plays that Robinson Crusoe is a really, really fun game. Great thematic tie-ins. But for me, there's this a certain je ne sais quoi preventing it from puncturing into my sort of top 10 or top, you know, whatever games. Certainly, mm. certainly hasn't punctured into my top 10 solo games. You know, maybe with repeated plays that could that could change. But from what you're saying, I think I agree. It kind of, yeah, it has this wonderful emergent narrative and beautiful thematic tie-ins, and the scenarios are just a bit, I think, just a bit mundane, you know? It's just a bit, yeah. pay some wood to chuck it on the, to, to create the cross. Who cares? Who cares? Yeah. It's not fun. I think, I think the map exemplifies it as well. This is one area where I think the game really is lacking the world map. And I think they even know it because the way it's drawn is around the edges. It looks like the world's bigger than it is, but they're half hexagons that you can't put a tile in. The map is only, I can't remember, is it uh, something like nine spaces? Uh, I'd, have, I'd have to look, sorry. I don't know the exact number of spaces. And that feels really small. And I get it, it's an island, but it's so limiting. And those spaces only have a few bits of information on them. They're not unique, distinct places. This isn't the waterfall tile, oh, it's so interesting. They're, they're, they're distinct enough, but they're not that exciting. And the world doesn't feel expansive and interesting and mysterious. It just feels like, I'll just turn over a tile. They're all kind of interchangeable. Yeah, and even, and even when you've got the Explorer, the Explorer has an action where you can spend a termination and look at the top three, choose one that's going to come up next and put the rest back and shuffle them in. And even that, you're just looking for one symbol. You, every time I used that action, I was looking for a particular symbol so I could build a particular item. So it's like, do I have one of those? I didn't even look at the art. It was just, do, does it have this symbol? It does, mm. cool. I'll keep that one. Those ones are back in the bag. Didn't feel like exploration. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the heart of the thing I was saying at the start and probably a better example than the one I came up with on the top of my head. But yeah, you, you, you these tiles are mechanically quite interesting. Some of them have natural shelters. Some of them add a beast card. Some of them give you discovery tokens. Ooh, that's, you know, a treat. That's quite interesting. But 
narratively and immerse immersionally no they're, they're pretty dull aren't they <laughs> you know yeah. the, the the world soon gets filled in and you're kind of left going okay well this is the tile we stay on for the rest of the game yeah oh yeah you don't move around very much on this map at all because no. it's it hurts you to do it it mechanic it punishes you to move which is an interesting choice yeah it just kind of feels a bit mm. Maybe I'd like it if there was a character where if you have this character, uh, it's not as punishing to move around. That would be cool. That would be an interesting choice. Or or even a scenario where in this scenario, you can move around without taking hits to your... You're a traveller, you know. You have you have a, a, a rolling camp or something. And then um, you need a bigger world map to accommodate that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. But the world map is kind of quite limiting, I think. I would be really interested to see how the expansions handle these sort of problems. Um, I think there's a lot more to explore for Robinson Crusoe, and I certainly feel like I have unfinished business with it because, like I said, these last two weeks have been so busy. Uh, I just mm. wish I had more chance to, to play it like yeah. I would with with other games on the on the on the show. So, I think maybe we kind of owe it to to come back at some point. Yeah, for sure. I'd, but, I'd love to, especially yeah. if we get hold of the expansions. Yeah, um, I do just want to touch on and say that you know the depth of adventure cards, mystery cards—they're a special sort of deck all on their own. They're really fun. The the action spaces are just the right number of all of these things. I just wish there was more map spaces. I wish. The, the discovery tiles as well that come from the map, I wish there were more of those. They always felt really repetitive. Other than that, I think it's a really great game. There's just a few little bits where it just kind of falls down. You go, but why? Why didn't you put in 10 more of those tiles? Why didn't you make the map three tiles big? Why did you half draw those tiles in? Why didn't you just fill them in? Even if you don't ever explore that, just knowing that you can is exciting. And it's a shame that they, they cut cut that off there they made that decision to say no we, we don't want that rough edge on our game we want to limit players to only exploring these tiles because it's mechanically safer it makes more sense why yeah stop clipping those wings yeah let people make those stupid mistakes let them explore every single tile on that board which is now three tiles or even six tiles bigger and you've got a more diverse tile set Give us those rough edges. That's what I wanted to scream at the game in a, in a weird sort of way. Maybe the expansions bring those back in. I don't think they would, but maybe. We'll see. We'll see. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I think my final my final thoughts on Robinson Crusoe is it's a damn fun game and I will certainly play it more. And I just, I love the... I love the risk-reward choices that are dedically built in throughout the whole design the one or two workers the rolling the dice the cards yeah love it like yourself i do think it's not gonna make its way into my into my top 10 because when i finish i kind of feel okay sometimes when i win i kind of go ah i did it mm. cool yeah the ending is so anticlimactic whether you win or lose even in that moment where i had the interesting story you see the ending coming kind of a bit before it happens mm -hmm. and i don't know i don't know why it always just feels a bit like oh no it's over and maybe it's because it's quite a long setup and tear down um i think the setup's clever but i also think it is long and maybe like like i'm looking thinking back at the intro scenario you i knew that i was going to win it i, I could like time i was like this is how much wood i'm gonna get here here here's how much i could lose i know i'll win in x many rounds do I even bother playing? Like, well, do I have to? Thing. Do I have to see it out? Like, mm. 
here's the thing. In later scenarios, those last four games I played, I knew I was going to win by turn five. I lost all four. <laughs> okay, cool. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Okay. Which, which, that's something that gets challenged as you play. Those those preconceptions of like, oh, this is just like castaways where we built the big rock pile. No problem. Nah, you, you're going to... It's you, If you play more scenarios, it, it goes... It, <laughs> you lose that certainty for sure okay 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 cool wow that's great that's great because that's one problem i had i wasn't even planning on bringing up but i'm glad i did now because that's made me more excited to uh, to get back into the game that's awesome yeah yeah definitely it's a hard game <laughs> <laughs> okay i think that's probably enough about robinson cruz so shall we look at the responses we got from last episode sure sure um before we read out any responses from last episode what's the what's the question for this one so this episode, we are asking, what is a game which approaches perfection for you? A game which is almost perfect, but just has those one or two choices or, de- or design things, or maybe even theme, whatever it is that pulls you out of it and, and makes you not able to say it's the best game. Yeah, what's the game that you go, I love that game, except for this tiny thing we want to know your micro criticisms we want to know what turns you off let let us know we'll come on to how you can contact us in a moment but first let's unpack responses we got from last episode so again the question from last episode was what is a game that has surprised you the most a game you thought you wouldn't enjoy but ended up loving so the first response was from comrade boris uh comrade said the game that surprised him the most was 18 chesapeake he said, but for solo play, it's a lot harder to say because he usually does a lot of research before buying a game. But if he had to say, it would be too many bones. Even after watching lots of playthroughs, he was still on the fence. And it just so happened that his friendly local game store has a copy. So there you go. He was on the fence, picked it up, ended up loving it. Yeah, 18 Chesapeake, very, very exciting. So what are your views on 18 Chesapeake, Norm? Because I know you're the uh, 18xx buff out of the two. I was like, have I played that one? I don't even know. (laughs) I don't don't think you have. 18 Chesapeake is kind of an intro game. Well, not kind of, it is an intro, 18xx. I would say if you were really interested in trying 18xx and no one in your group has played it, it's a really good purchase. But if you've got people willing to teach you how to play 18xx, then just dive in, play, put, your, put your big boy trousers on and play a, <laughs> play 1830. <laughs> I wonder if that sort of stigma is what made uh, Comrade think that they weren't going to like it. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. But, you know, it's 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 fine. It's um, 18 Chesapeake is nice. For me, it has the problem we said with Robinson Crusoe. It has a lot of the hard edges shaved off to make it beginner-friendly. Mm. And I think... You know, it's cool. It's cool that the games like that exist. But at some point, I think if you shave off a lot of the hard edges because you're worried it's going to put players off, then are they even playing the genre? Those yeah, those hard edges are a, are a feature of the genre. So just dive in. Yeah, I think hard edges is something that is is really important, especially I think in solo games and in games which are trying to invite immersion. I think you need to have a degree of mystery, uncertainty, unpredictability, and that that can't exist when you've got hard edge uh, when you've got the hard edges shaved off. And I think maybe that's where the 
the real critique for Robinson Crusoe comes from me. I'm still trying to work this out. We call this the flip-flop episode for Scruffy, yeah? Because I'm still trying to trying to work out why it doesn't quite hit that greatness for me when it so comes so close. Cool. Cool. We also had Tigmic write in on the Discord. They said for solo play, they would say Aerion. It's so simple and short. It also showed how important it is to have a mix of weights. So they've played a lot of Spirit Island and Mage Knight lately. But when they get home late and they only have a few brain cells left, it helps to have a small game to just zone out and calm their nerves. Fantastic choice. I, I've been looking at the Omniverse since we mentioned it. Was it in the last planning phase? Uh, and yeah, Arion seems to me to be the one I'm most keen to try because the only one I haven't really looked at too much is Nortilion, but the other ones, I don't know, they didn't really capture me in the same way that building up a fleet and the sort of decision space there seems really fun so yeah i'd, I'd definitely be tempted to try and if uh, if we've got listeners running in saying that it surprised them then yeah we'll definitely have to visit that one for sure yeah and at time of recording it is the day after my birthday and i unwrapped that yesterday so i'm really excited to give that a go we also had banana right in banana republic they said that Mage Knight is the game that surprised them the most, and they've given a good reason for it. They said this is the year that they started solo board gaming seriously. They used to play by themselves, but they already own those games. Uh, they got them initially to play with other people, and then they just so happened to have a solo variant. But Mage Knight, Arion, again mentioned, and Friday were the first games that they got that were truly purchased for their solo enjoyment and they say it's been a fantastic journey definitely mage knight's depth surprised them and they've been enjoying it a lot so that's pretty cool couldn't agree more and yeah it's been the same for us this year as well hasn't it the solo solo adventure (laughs) yeah 2020 has been the year of the solo gamer for sure (laughs) that's uh, one good thing that's come out of it if nothing if nothing nothing else (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Banana also wrote that they listened to our Mage Knight episode three times before deciding to pull the trigger. So that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. We also had Consley write in. Consley said that their surprise enjoyment in their whole board gaming career was Hostage Negotiator. And with that... Go ahead. Sorry, I just I've I've heard about this. It was when I when I first looked at solo board gaming, it was one of the first games I encountered and I I, I was very tempted to pull the trigger on buying it, but I, I took myself out of it. What what stopped you in the end? I do not remember. I think I just talked myself out of it. You know, I was so new to the hobby and everything was so daunting. I didn't really know where to start. Yeah, that's difficult, isn't it? First step's mm. always the hardest. <laughs> yeah but for sure we'll um we'll have to add that one to the ever-growing list norm that's one to check out yep yep absolutely uh they said with hostage negotiator they have to add in the whole category of what what they believe people call micro games i can confirm that's what i call them <laughs> <laughs> they've listed three that they like anirim sauron's frontiers and gate but to touch more on a game like hostage negotiator specifically They didn't think they'd really enjoy it, considering the entirety of the game's mechanics are based around rolling dice. As someone that started off their board game career trying to find harder and harder games, they started off with Catan and within a few months of playing things like Gaia Project. They were convinced that they needed 
to have longer and longer and more advanced games. But once they set up Hostage Negotiator and played a game, within the first 20 minutes, they fell in love. And I think that's something really nice about that, you know? Yeah, I mean, we make real snap judgments, don't we? And we decide what's right and what's wrong with board game design. So on a dime, I think. And it's amazing when you delve into it a bit deeper and you encounter an experience that proves you completely wrong Mm -hmm. and makes you kind of reassess everything. And then it actually opens you up in a really nice way to giving other games that you've written up in the past a chance. Because if you approach a game, like I approached Robinson Crusoe two years ago, and I said, yeah, I don't like it. It's got randomness. It's rubbish. I don't like randomness. That's bad game design. And I didn't have fun with it, or at least nowhere near as much fun as I had this time. And I know I've been a bit critical of it this episode, but I had so much fun in my playthroughs. Every time I finished setting up, I sat down and I was excited to get started and get playing. And the randomness wasn't even a thought in my head because I didn't have that inhibition. If anything, the randomness is one of the real shiny, nice and fun, exciting moments in Robinson Crusoe. Definitely, yeah. 100%. I agree. And I had this. I had a similar experience. I went on a similar journey with board games. I was always looking for the next big, heavy monster economic simulator. Yeah. And then... I think solo gaming has really helped me with that sort of prejudice because in solo gaming, if you don't have randomness in your games, then sometimes it can feel like you're lacking that kind of external factor that a player would normally give to you. And it's helped me really fall in love with randomness. And I really want to do an episode where we unpack randomness in games in general because, yeah, it's a really interesting tool that game designers can use yeah i think it's especially useful in solo as opposed to multiplayer games because in multiplayer games it's a competition whereas in solo games winning and losing is important but it's not the be all and end all for the fun if you draw a card that makes you lose you can still have had fun in that game mm-hmm. theoretically mm-hmm. and you know there, there is still bad random design there is still good randomness designs but i think uh it's a lot more fun in a solo game than it is in a multiplayer game there's a really nice analogy that i like but i'm going to keep it in my back pocket for our randomness episode oh (laughs) you tease (laughs) (laughs) okay the next one we had in was from varga who said their biggest surprise enjoyment of a game was 100 spirit island and the reason for it actually right well i think it's quite a funny story they said They had a terrible introduction to the game. Their first two plays were four players, and no one enjoyed it. Their third play was on Tabletop Simulator, and this was with experienced players who didn't really enjoy the fact that they were a little bit lost during the game. And their fourth play was with their significant other who had some problems with analysis paralysis. Finally... They decided they would try it one last time before they sold it. (laughs) And it just clicked. And now they think it's one of the best games they've ever played. Isn't that funny? Wow, yeah. And that's why I want to, you know, that's why I've been nothing but apologetic that I've only played a couple of games of Robinson Crusoe before doing the podcast, because I know that this happens all the time. You play a game a bunch of times, and you get to that fourth or fifth play, and you go... Oh, there's so much more to this game than I thought initially. 
or did suddenly the decision space makes a lot more sense to you and it just yeah comes to life and yeah i think that's a lovely story and it happens to me all the time yeah it's it's totally true i mean sometimes it just takes adjusting one variable in the way you're playing or whatever with me i'd i'd kind of written off spirit island as a game that was just too hard until i played it single-handed and that was only kind of a last ditch thing and i started doing it for the podcast as just kind of an experiment and then i realized this is really fun <laughs> and it's a game I really enjoy now. So it's funny, I had a, a very similar experience with the same game, but I guess for, for different reasons. Yeah. And we had a lot more people write in. I just read the first four and I don't think we'll have more time, but thank you so much to everyone who did write in. We read all of them. Obviously, we've responded to all of them on the Discord. And if you want to write in and answer this episode's question, Scruffy, if we'd like to remind them what, this episode's question was yeah uh, the question this episode is what is a game which has approached perfection for you but just had one or two things that inhibited it from taking that step into being one of your favorite games i'm really interested to see what people say to this one because it's sometimes like we've demonstrated in this game sometimes it's hard to even put your finger on it you know yeah what is yeah. it exactly what is that je ne sais quoi I feel like we could talk about this for a few more hours and I'd still not quite be able to put my finger on on, on exactly what did it. So I hope you guys have enjoyed hearing me have a bit of a, a, a bit of a flip-flop mind meld. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I've enjoyed it. It's been really fun. Yeah, good. Okay, so if you want to answer this episode's question or write in about anything, including how wrong we are about Robinson Crusoe, then feel free to do so. You can email us. It's alwaysplayer1podcast at gmail.com. You can also respond in our Discord. Our Discord server is free to join, and the links to our Discord are in the description. You can send us a direct message on Facebook or on Instagram, the links to our Facebook also in the description and we're on instagram as at always player one podcast we're also on reddit we post in the solo board gaming subreddit look for us always underscore player underscore one and finally if you'd like to support the show feel free to check out our patreon it's patreon.com forward slash always player one podcast but that's everything for this episode i hope you enjoyed it scruffy did you enjoy it at least I had a blast. Thank you for bearing with me, Norm. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it was interesting to listen to. And get excited for next week where we do the Christmas Day quiz. Honestly, I can't wait for you guys to hear this because it was so much fun. Yes, me neither. Yeah, it was it was a great experience and I'm I'm looking forward to hearing your guys' thoughts on it in the Discord. If you enjoyed it, it'd be nice to hear. And if you want to see more things like it we well we'll yeah we'd love to we'd love to hear that as well so we'll see you for the quiz on the 25th of december happy holidays to everyone and thank you again for listening and you're awesome yeah peace out see you in a week thanks for listening if you'd like to support the show don't forget to check out our patreon page the links to that are in the description we'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Always Player One. Until then, reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or by email to keep the conversation going.